Okay, Jenny, when I say fair food, what comes to mind? Fairs nowadays, you know, it used to be, oh, you know, pizza, hamburger, hot dog, lemonade. I mean, the usual things that you could get at a fair. But in recent years, um, with kind of the explosion of the Internet and Instagrammable food, we're seeing fair food being pushed into this kind of extreme level. So, you know, instead of just your ice cream on a ice cream cone, you know, you're seeing um, things like fried butter, where they take butter and freeze it and dip it in batter and then deep fry it and serve it with some blobby sauce that you probably don't need because you're eating fried butter. Yes, fried Oreos, fried Twinkies. I mean, just like, whoa. Massive burgers that have 18 patties. I mean, fair food is really starting to come into this kind of explosive realm. And that's because they know that it's going to be photographed, it's going to be talked about, and it's going to be craveable, and people are going to talk about it. I don't think that I think of a fair without thinking of indulging. I, I want to eat it all, even if it doesn't make me feel the best. <laughs> right. From KCR Studios in Kansas City and the Missouri Humanities Council, this is Hungry for Mo, a podcast about the stories behind the iconic foods that shape our region. I'm Natasha Bailey, a chef, cheese enthusiast, and home gardener. And I'm Jenny Vergara, a freelance writer and the founder of The Test Kitchen, an underground supper club in Kansas City. Fair has always been a place where people can come together to share food and connect. And today, we're going to go back in time to one of the most influential fairs in history, the St. Louis World's Fair of 1904, also known as the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. People could take rides in the giant Ferris wheel, there was a fairy floss machine, or what's known today as a cotton candy machine, and tons of palaces and exhibits people could explore. It was also an event that revolutionized American food. This was in an era before television. This was in an era before magazines with color photographs. It's before many of the museums. So one of the reasons so many people would go to a World's Fair was to see the world. Peter Castor teaches about the World's Fair at Washington University in St. Louis. The World's Fair was also supposed to announce and to celebrate the arrival of the United States as a world power. And all of this was on display at the World's Fair. So this fair took place in St. Louis's Forest Park, and it was a major multicultural event. It started April 30th, 1904, and went all the way to December 1st. Can you imagine a fair for seven months? No, I, can't I cannot. Either. I cannot. And in starting, like, having the bulk of it in the heat of St. Louis, <sighs> like, that just does not, not Steamy sound hot. to me. Steamy hot, humid, you know? So there's more than 60 countries and 43 American states maintain exhibition spaces at the fair, which was attended by 19.7 million people. And that very same year, St. Louis also hosted the 1904 Summer Olympic Games, the first ever Olympics in the United States. I mean, it's not enough to do a giant affair that's attended <laughs> by 19 million people. Yes. You have to go ahead and just throw the Olympics on top of right all of that. Right in there. Okay, Jenny, I want to take you inside this fair. This is a celebration. Everybody wanted to come and show off what we had done and what we could do as a country and as a state. There were grand lagoons and gondola rides and an enormous festival hall that held the world's largest pipe organ. (laughs) Pipe organ? Yes. All right. And then there's like a, a giant, a gigantic floral clock 
um, that told time with a 74-foot-long minute hand above a broad face composed of beds of roses in a rainbow of colors. It's like you're in this just dream state Mm -hmm. because you're going through all of these different exhibits and able to walk through 62 countries. I want to take you to the international character of the fair. So there is a mile-long pike on the north side of the fairgrounds, and it's lined with cafes, amusements, and the food concessions where all of the beloved treats are. So we're talking ice cream cones, cotton candy, hot dogs, hamburgers. In addition to the typical fair food, we're gonna dine at the Chinese village, the streets of Cairo, the Irish village, and a grand Tyrolene restaurant, which sits 3,000 customers and is a miniature replica of the Alps. Oh, wow. Yes, so we can go through all these different countries and eat, eat our way through. We can eat our way through all of these beautiful countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would want to taste all the food, so I'm trying to sit here and figure out how many nights I have to go back to try each of the countries. Yes. Right? And how many things I could eat in a day, you know, three, three meals a day plus snacks. I don't know, I could do it in a week, maybe. If you believe all the popular tales and the lore, some of America's most iconic foods were invented at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. The hamburger, Dr. Pepper, iced tea, even the ice cream cone. You may actually have heard the story of how the ice cream cone was invented at the fair by Ernest Hamwi, a Syrian-born waffle concessionaire. He had a flash of inspiration. When the ice cream vendor next to him ran out of glass serving dishes, he rolled up one of his thin waffles, scooped in some ice cream, and bam, invented the ice cream cone. (laughs) I love that story. (laughs) Yes. Then there's another story that on a sweltering day, few passerbys were interested in the cups of hot tea offered by Richard Blaishton, the tea commissioner in the India Pavilion. So the desperate man decided to pour his tea over ice and supposedly an iconic American beverage was born. So these are true or these are false? These are false. Okay. My name is Pam Carroll, and my book is Beyond the Ice Cream Cone, The Whole Scoop on Food at the 1904 World's Fair. Pam Carroll's book is all about getting to the truth behind some of these stories around the foods invented at the fair, because there were some new foods we can trace to this event. Pam, you have a chapter called Truths, Half-Truths, and Anything But the Truth. And I'd love for you to share one of each just to give us a little more insight. Okay. Truths. The introduction of um, puffed wheat that was first seen at the fair. It had just been recently invented. No one had seen it, you know, in real life. They rigged up a cannon and they actually shot the stuff from a cannon, which became the puffed rice. So that that's a truth. Now, that might not blow people away, but it is a, a truth. So half truth would be Dr. Pepper. I drink Dr. Pepper, don't you see? Because it's the perfect taste for me. People want to credit us with introducing Dr. Pepper. That is only partially true. Dr. Pepper was invented by a I guess you would, at the time, call him what we would call a soda jerk at a pharmacy in Waco, Texas. He played around with different flavors and stuff and concocted uh, something in the 
the pharmacist said, hey, this is not half bad. Let's see if we can bottle it. And they hooked up with a bottler and they made it popular. They heard there was going to be a World's Fair. Maybe if we put a distributor in St. Louis, we can haul this stuff at the World's Fair if we get approved and see what happens with that. And I believe the other one is nothing but the truth or everything but the truth. Is that the, the one yes. you want? And that's iced tea. I'm going to go with iced tea. I mean, I, because it's just simply not one little teeny tiny thing is true about iced tea. I bought a book at an auction in 1980 something in Vermont, and it was a souvenir cookbook from the 1893 World's Fair. Remember, I grew up learning we invented iced tea at the fair and all the little stories. And um, the thing that happened was I opened the book, it's huge, and the women's wrote it, of course. And I turned almost immediately to a recipe for iced tea. And that was like, this can't be. They could not have done that. They didn't invent it until 1904. So that was the easiest one. There's nothing true about that. So, yes on puffed wheat from a cannon, sort of on Dr. Pepper, and a firm no on iced tea. But the myth-busting that Pam Vaccaro receives the most flack for is the ice cream cone. The origins of the ice cream cone uh, are very, very vague. There are actually about five to six families or who claim that they're they're family member invented the ice cream cone at the fair by taking a waffle cone, hardening it, uh, drying it around a conical object, and then putting ice cream in it. Um, it's interesting, uh, out of the five or six families who claim this, three are from the Middle East. They all three have the same story, but it is also interesting that all three of those individuals did start a ice cream cone company after the World's Fair. They went on to, in, to invent equipment to make ice cream cones, the cones that we know today. But who's, who was the first to do this? It's really questionable. I wish I could be more definitive. We all wish I could be more definitive. But I tell you, St. Louisans weren't real happy when I challenged the question of um, the ice cream cone, iced tea, was absolutely simple for me, too. And that was the most fun for me to discredit. It seems like both of those stories, the ice cream and the iced tea, kind of amplify the disconnect between what was invented and what was popularized at the World Fair. That is correct. And and I, I would say since the 19, late 1980s or 1990s, those of us who are interested in the World's Fair have... Uh, glommed on to the, the term, and I think rightfully so, things were popularized at the fair. You know, given what I said there, the ice cream cone, since it cannot be proven to have been invented there, we do say popularized. Wasn't the hamburger also a foodstuff claimed to be invented at the World's Fair? Is that a myth, too? So the most widely repeated tale from the fair is that Fletcher Old Dave Davis, a lunch counter operator from Athens, Texas, who per reportedly came to St. Louis to introduce a sandwich he had invented by placing a patty of ground beef between two slices of bread. German-born St. Louis residents dubbed it the Hamburger, knowing that the citizens of Hamburg, Germany, had a particular fondness for ground beef. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> the term hamburger steak, referring to the patty, 
made of ground beef, meant to be eaten with a knife and fork, appeared in print before the Civil War. Okay, so that myth busted. Yes. Got it. (laughs) Busted. (laughs) The hamburger was served decades before it appeared at the St. Louis Fair. So this is really a situation of there was 19 million people that may have eaten a hamburger for the first time, although a hamburger has been around since way before, or iced tea, or yes, all of these things. So it's they're all just kind of grounded in a single place at a single point in time. So it'd be like something going viral in our day and age. Yes, exactly. Right? And then we call it new when it's really been here for the last 20, 30 years. Part of the reason these iconic American foods became so popular at the fair was they were portable. So fairgoers could eat while they explored the fairgrounds, which was a relatively newer concept at the time. Pam says there were big ways the World's Fair of 1904 revolutionized American cuisine, just maybe not in the ways most people would think. I wouldn't say that it had a major effect on specific items in our cuisine or how we, how, yes, definitely culturally we change, but what has profoundly impacted how we distributed food, how we marketed food, how we produced food, and even how we became aware of the purities or lack of them in our food. So let me give you some specific examples. Canning had become something that had not been done. The Industrial Revolution impacted that. And so at the World's Fair, you had people who were now showing you cans of food that you could buy. That, though, brought up another food impact, and that was, so what's in those cans? What besides food are in those cans? It should sound like a familiar question from today's culture. And so there was the Pure Food Congress that was held at the fair to question the, the purity of food as it was coming out of this new industrialized uh, time in history. There was even a poison squad by, <clears throat> put together by the United States government to taste these foods that were now canned and processed to see what would happen. So there were 12 men who actually volunteered to eat these questionable items and have recorded what would happen to them. Now, they didn't show up at the fair. They did live through it but their results did at the fair. So people could go and see that particular impact. The huge, huge one was uh, the marketing of products and food items that you and I know very well today. Some of the big name companies that took advantage of this exposure were Kellogg's, Pillsbury, and the Heinz Company, who had elaborate displays of all their products. So when you have a World's Fair, if you're a company, how can I let my product be known at a place where, you know, 20 million people are going to show up? They, they took that very seriously. There was one spot at the fair that was basically the hub for all the food displays and innovations, the Palace of Agriculture. I mean, I could go on this whole time just about the agricultural building. And so what you had there, the fair was meant to be an educational event. You also took home a lot of freebies but also in the agricultural building were supersized food products to get your attention. For example, there was a 10-foot prune bear. The two most popular fruits at the time were prunes and apples. And, and so the prune bear was 10 feet tall. He had a big red light in his mouth and obviously could get your attention only to bring you to the California booth 
where they gave you fruits and told you to please come to California. It was a great place to farm. And one thing that I would have really wanted to see is the butter sculpture of Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> his comment when he saw the butter sculpture and he turned to his wife, Edith, and said, do I really look like that? <laughs> I feel like I would stay in the agriculture <laughs> pavilion for months. I, I think I would have just oh. like set up shop right there. Absolutely. Natasha, I've been, I would have been right next to you, believe me. The palace was over 20 acres. There were exhibits devoted to cereal tubers, coffee, tea, meat, eggs, spices, beer, whiskey. And it taught fairgoers about new foods, how to grow foods, and get food from new places. Wow. So a distribution. How we get our food. Yes. Or create our food. Yes, there's definitely some creation going on inside of here. The Pillsbury Flower Pavilion did daily demonstrations of how they milled flour, and they gave out free samples of bread that they made fresh daily from the Pillsbury Flower. The California delegation displayed pyramids of oranges, stacks of lemons, tables full of apples. People were even introduced to kumquats. A small fruit that fairgoers found easy to slip from the trees and sneak into their pockets as a souvenir. Until they got them home and tried to figure out how to eat them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Seriously. If you could eat anything at the fair, what would it be? Oh, wow. Oh, that is a question I have never been asked. I would have tried just about anything. But I think holding a box of fairy floss would have been such a a fun thing if, if I was going back in time, you know, knowing what it looks like now. But to have a Cracker Jack sized box of fairy floss and uh, a world's fair, I think food to me is more about experience and taste sometimes. So that would be the experience I would want again. You read my book. What would you like to try? I, <laughs> I don't even know. I, the foodie in me, would want to follow around the poison police, <laughs> the poison squad. <laughs> the poison squad. <laughs> I'd want to go with them and taste everything and hope to live to tell the story. <laughs> I really think that it was a place where you could dream about different foods and you're able to experience food in a way that you would not be able to experience it any other, and on any other day. I mean, most of these people had never even had an orange or experienced a an ice cream cone, you know? And so to be able to be in a place where you can go back and have that every other day, or you can go to a different country and try their cuisine, for seven months, I think that it changed the way that we as Americans were able to even look at food or our food systems or how we get food. Yeah, I mean, I think it boils down for me to um, inspiration and access, whether you were a chef or a home cook or just someone who enjoyed food. Um, you were truly educating yourself. And then the access is realizing that all of these things are at your fingertips in this room. So why can't all of these things be in your fingertips on your home table? Yes. Right. Either you're creating it or you're importing it in. Um, so, you know, for me, it would be it changed um, the way Americans kind of view food just because all of a sudden they had inspiration and access to all these cultures and taste all these flavors. 
For all the food and fun and the beautiful things happening at this fair, we can now see the fair also exhibited some of the worst of the world in 1904. The World's Fair itself is globalism on display. Here's Peter Castor from Washington University in St. Louis again. When I said the U.S. was announcing itself to the world, it wasn't just that the United States was a large country or that it had a booming economy, but the United States had become a global empire. Principally in the Spanish-American War, the United States had acquired the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Cuba. It had then engaged in a series of bloody military crackdowns against the peoples who lived in those places who wanted their own independence. And Euro-Americans came out of that celebrating themselves as this global empire. But nonetheless, many Americans were fascinated by the peoples who lived on those islands. The fair had living exhibits where actual indigenous peoples from around the world were put on display and were observed by fairgoers, kind of like a sideshow. Let's walk through what some of them were. There was a village from the Philippines with Filipinos living there. They were there to showcase this land that the United States had just conquered. Likewise, there was an Indian village on display at the World's Fair with Native Americans present for this as well. What I want to emphasize is that all of these are deeply racist representations of peoples from around the world, but each one does it in a slightly different way. That is just shocking. Not all people were treated like people. There's a lot of love around this fair, but what's the truth? You know, like for... It's a lot of love for who at the fair. And I think that that, it speaks to the time, but also it's just kind of, it's hard to really think about the fair in a peachy way because it's just not a fair for everyone. I don't know really how to say that without bruising Missouri's ego, you know? What's important to see in the World's Fair is that it was a moment that was partly designed to celebrate American glory. American democracy, the American economy, but it's also something that displayed in the most obvious terms imaginable the way that the United States was a space of inequality. Fair attendance was segregated by race. The living exhibitions were really celebrations of white supremacy The thing that made me a little, I don't know, a little upset, I mean, to think as a black person, I probably wouldn't have been able to enjoy the fair as much as everyone else. Yeah, it it, it should make you feel put out and for several reasons. So let's begin by considering, first of all, who's able to go to the fair and then also what message the fair was trying to send. So St. Louis was a deeply segregated city. The World's Fair was held 40 years after the end of enslavement in Missouri. And so it's well within the living memory of many Missourians. And so this was a fair where those attending were principally white. Attendants are a really mixed group of native-born immigrants who'd come to the United States as well because St. Louis had this big uh, immigrant population. But those racial and ethnic dynamics were 
powerful in determining who could go to the fair. I really appreciate talking to Peter about these complicated sides to the fair that Missouri doesn't give the same attention to as all the food and fun, because that's the truth. We can't just coat over these disparities and the inequality that the St. Louis World Fair also helped perpetuate. One of the things we often learn when we look at the past is really how complicated and contingent these moments are. And that equality and inequality coexist in the same space. That freedom and opportunity and racism and segregation exist in the same space. And the World's Fair really showed that. That's one of the lessons of the fair, which is it, 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 as much as any moment demonstrates both the most fundamental forms of possibility and opportunity that many associate with the United States, and also the most fundamental problems with the United States that are entrenched in our nation, baked into the cake from day one. It's just like learning that if we don't acknowledge our past as it truly was, then we just keep repeating it over and over again. And it's very hard for us as a country to move forward. But we keep celebrating these false wins. We don't really honor who we truly are. Exactly. And there is so much more to gain from celebrating and acknowledging the truth about these things, you know? Especially for a big historical event like the World's Fair. All of the layers and dynamics at play. Even how that connects to food lore and the truths around that. All of this forces us to look in a more honest way, in ways that we've grown, or maybe we haven't. Yeah, I mean, with this episode and all the episodes we've done, I've learned so much more by diving into all these different stories about food and exploring the deeper truths and meanings about the past. I learned that tracing Missouri's history as a state is not just about celebrating it. It's also about acknowledging where it fell short and continuing to learn from all of these moments. Hungry for Mo is a production for KCUR Studios with the support of the Missouri Humanities Council. This episode was produced and mixed by Suzanne Hogan with editing from Gabe Rosenberg. Our team also includes Mackenzie Martin. Mike Russo is the head chef of KCUR Studios. Music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jenny Vergara. I'm Natasha Bailey, and I can't stress enough how much both Jenny and I have enjoyed traveling around the state with all of you. Natasha, this has been so much fun. I want Mo. I want Mo. <laughs> Until then, you can go to kcur.org slash hungry for more food content and stories from Hungry for Mo. We hope you enjoyed it too. You can always keep in touch with us by sending us an email at hungry at kcur.org or follow us on Twitter. KCUR is at KCUR. If you want to catch me directly, find me on Instagram at EatableKC. And I'm on Instagram at JJ Vergara. Until next time. Hey, Gina Kaufman here. I'm the host of Real Humans, another podcast from KCUR Studios. I wanted to pop in to say that if you liked this episode, looking back at the World Fair in St. Louis, you might also like my podcast where every week I take my listeners with me on surprising Kansas City adventures and misadventures, like the time I tried to figure out why our parks and St. Louis's parks are so different. The answer came as kind of a shock. To listen, search for Real Humans by Gina Kaufman wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Kansas City Today, a brand new daily news podcast from KCUR. 
I'm your host, Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast will be your daily rundown on what's happening in KC, Kansas, and Missouri. Our region is growing fast. There's a lot to cover, and we know you're busy. Each episode featuring KCUR's award-winning journalists will give you a daily dose of the news that matters in your community. Get the news on your terms when you want it. Subscribe to Kansas City today and tell your friends. And so you're seeing, like, how do you, how can you take an Oreo and an ice cream cone and a fried donut? I mean, the, the other thing that they were serving was a hamburger, and the buns were a glazed donut cut in half and used as, and with hamburger in between. And so you're eating this glaze, and it was, it was delicious. I, I was have, delicious. No, I have to tell you, we can't oh talk. We, can't, we cannot talk about how delicious that was. <laughs> But sinful, shameful. Yes. You do not want to think about the calorie count in that. Like bacon and cheese but, to it. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah.